0: For our scripture reading we turn first to Acts chapter 17. Here we consider here Paul and Silas as they visit Thessalonica during the Paul's second missionary journey. We'll read just the first ten verses. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, "'These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received.' And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now we turn to First Thessalonians. We read the chapter, First Thessalonians. Chapter one. First Thessalonians, chapter one. Paul and Silvanus, and that is Silas, and Timotheus, and that is Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning, and the text that we consider is the last part of verse 9 and then also verse 10. How ye turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for For his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Dearly beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ... We learn about the subject of the gospel going forth to the nations, as we read in the book of Acts and also along with that in the different epistles of Paul. we read about the history in the book of Acts, and we read other aspects of the history are brought up uh, in the in the epistles as well, and putting them together we we learn about what Paul, the providence of God, what he encountered on the mission field, we learn about the work of God. And that is specifically set forth in this text, the work of God and how he turned these people who had been worshiping idols. He turned them. He turned them from idolatry to serve the living God. They turned to God from idols to serve Him and to wait for His Son from heaven. What did they hear? What was it that Paul spoke to them when he went to Thessalonica? What was the gospel that they heard? Well, when we put together things that are mentioned here and in the book of Acts, we can see the message that he brought that he spoke to them about God. He spoke to them about the Almighty God, the gracious Savior of His people. He spoke about God's Son, our Redeemer, who, as the text says, was raised from the dead. He reconciled the people of God to God. He delivered us. He is the one which delivered us from the wrath to come. He spoke of forgiveness. And there were those that did not believe. We see that in the passage we read in Acts. There were those that did not believe, there were those that persecuted the saints that did believe. But there were also those who, by the grace of God, turned to the living and true God. They turned from their sin to God. Paul gave thanks to God for that. Paul gave thanks to God for the saints in Thessalonica who, by the grace of God, turned. It's important to see how Paul, often in his letters When we read the letters of the Apostle Paul that went into the Scriptures, and we see how he would begin by making a reference to thanking God for the saints there. And it is important that we constantly do that. I thank God for for you, for this congregation. I thank God for our churches Thank God for his work in our federation. It is good for us to continue to say that. We've been going through some very, very difficult times. As individual congregations, and also as a federation of churches. It is good for us also to thank God for guiding us through this, and continuing to uphold us, to thank God for his work and his people. There were various problems in Thessalonica. And elsewhere where Paul went. He encountered much opposition. He continued to thank God. He makes reference to that. That he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. So This was ongoing. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. He kept remembering that. He's going to point out sins that he sees in the congregation. He's also continuing to remember their work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, this passage, in connection with the news that was read this, this morning, this passage addresses a number of, brings up a number of subjects in this short little text here. On the one hand, it brings out to all of us the importance of us turning from sin. We read of these, these people who were worshiping idols, and they turn from that sin to God. Well, as we read that we also are constantly to turn away from our own sin. We're not to be as those who gather to hear the word and yet continue on week after week in a sin. We're to be genuinely turning from sin to God. And as we read of others that turn from their sin, we also are constantly to examine ourselves and we are to be turning from our own sin to the living God, to the true God, to wait for Christ who delivers His people, the ones who are waiting for Him by the grace of God. Secondly, another point to see here is the subject of forgiveness. He delivered us from the wrath to come. You and I deserve wrath. When we hear about the sins of others, it is important that we constantly remember the curse that we deserve. And verses that were read pointed that out too, as the consistory read. We're to constantly take heed to ourselves and remember we deserve the curse. When we examine ourselves, we're constantly to think on the curse we deserve for our own sins. And to remember that Jesus delivered us from the wrath to come, what he suffered in our place. And then thirdly, another point is that the importance of us, or the comfort that we have, as those who are waiting for Christ to come back. In our trials and in the difficulties that we face in this life, in the sorrows we go through, The Lord works in us, constantly reminding us that he's coming back. This life is a valley of tears. We confess that and we experience that in in this life. So that we constantly, in the trials that we go through, in times when we're very, very sad, the Spirit reminds us. Our Lord is coming back. There will be the full deliverance, the full realization of all of what God has promised. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. We'll dwell with our God without sin. We'll dwell with Christ. We will forever be with Him. We wait, patiently wait for our Lord to come back. We go through trials and we weep together. We weep as those who do have hope. So we consider this text under the theme, Waiting for God's Son from Heaven. We consider, first of all, the genuine turning. Secondly, the patient waiting. And then thirdly, the the joyful service. Those who are waiting are joyfully serving their Lord. First of all, we look at it from the viewpoint of the genuine turning. The fact that they turned to the true and living God, as it says, ye turn to God to serve the living and true God, means that they heard about God. Those who are worshiping idols, they heard preaching about the true God. The true God over against fictitious gods who are not really gods. The true God as he has revealed himself to us in Holy Scripture. Many people say things about God that are not true. The true God who has made himself known and revealed to us the truth concerning himself in Holy Scripture. The true God the living God. Scripture speaks of God having God's heart, speaks of the will of God. God has life in Himself, the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is fellowship within the being of God. Communion and the covenant God makes his covenant with us, and brings us into fellowship with him. He is the source of our life, the living God. And we know, of course, that everlasting life is to know him. And Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He spoke about God. We often speak about the importance of being theocentric in our preaching, that we talk about God, and undoubtedly, by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul did. He talked about Christ, the Son of God. In Acts chapter 17, verse 3, it says, He was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So he explained to them that Christ must needs have suffered. He explained to the people the punishment we deserve. He didn't suffer on account of his own sin. He was the sinless one. But we deserve punishment. He suffered He died, and He was raised from the dead. And undoubtedly also the truth that He ascended into heaven. A good way to remember the fundamentals that were preached are the fundamentals that are listed in the Apostles' Creed. Going a long ways back in church history, what has been used... To explain to those who come to us from outside, to explain the fundamental doctrines of the gospel, what has been used is the Apostles' Creed or a similar creed. Those fundamentals briefly explained. So, not only teaching them to say it, but explaining what it means. And that's exactly what we follow that same pattern. It's interesting to study the history of the early church and to look at how they used going through a creed to instruct those who were coming from outside. And how today in the Apostles' Creed, we do in the Heidelberg Catechism, we do the same thing. We go through the Apostles' Creed and we explain it. What do you mean when you confess this? You say Christ was, on the third day, He was raised from the dead. How does that benefit you? How does that benefit me? What does it mean that He ascended into heaven? Isn't He with us always? And explaining the the person and natures of Christ, that His divine nature is beyond the limits of the human nature, and so on. Explaining these fundamental doctrines, the Apostles' Creed summarizes... Accurately, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And notice that in that Apostles' Creed, we talk about Christ returning as judge, and repeatedly we see how Paul spoke of that. And the others that preached the gospel, they spoke of the coming return of Christ as judge. And they spoke about forgiveness. We say, I believe the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, those fundamental doctrines were continuously preached. They heard about salvation. They heard that God accomplishes his purpose in salvation. Evidence of that is found in the fact that in 1 Thessalonians chapter, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And then he doesn't go on and explain the doctrine of election, he has explained. Undoubtedly, he has explained this to them. Which brings out that he was giving sound doctrinal instruction to them. So that he could mention in this first letter, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And go on. The truth of unconditional election. The truth that God accomplishes his purpose in his elect people. He powerfully, as we say in the canons, He powerfully illuminates the minds of His elect by His Holy Spirit. He pervades the inmost recesses of the man. He infuses new qualities into the will, which, though heretofore dead, He quickens. He quickens it. From being evil, disobedient, He renders it good and obedient. He actuates and strengthens it. Now like a good tree, like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. And God's people knew that. In Acts 11, verse 18, it says that the saints said, when they heard about the turning of Gentiles to God, they said, then God... Also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That when they heard about people repenting, Gentiles repenting, they understood God had granted repentance. They heard about how God works in His people. The work of Christ for us, the work of Christ by His Spirit in us. And they heard the command to turn. You preach the promise, you preach about the work of God, the work of Christ, what he did for us, what he does in us, and you call people to turn. The command to repent and believe. In fact, in the second head of the canons, Article 5, it explains that what we're to preach is the promise of the gospel, together with the command to repent and believe. That ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. Commanding people to turn, speaking about the judgment on those who do not. that they turn to God from idols, God, that God's Word speaks against the worship of idols. And in the preaching of Paul, he would speak against the sins that were being committed and command people to turn. As at Lystra, we read that he said, we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, turn from these sins. Real turning, not just an external show, but a real turning from sin. We know what idolatry is. Someone may say, Well, I don't worship I don't worship idols. I worship only Jehovah God. Well, what is idolatry? Well, our creed rightly explains it. To contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust, besides the one true God. Do we contrive or have any other object in which we place our trust? Colossians 3, verse 5 speaks of covetousness, which is idolatry, trusting in our wealth, loving riches. We're not to be continuing to walk in any sin. Undoubtedly, It happens at times, and we hear announcements from time to time, and times people make confession of the fact that they've been for a long time, they weren't turning, and then their sin eventually gets exposed. Which means coming to church week after week and hearing the Word, not really turning. That can be a sexual sin. It can be an abusive kind of sin. Or it can be a bearing a grudge against someone and really hating a brother or sister in Christ, knowing that they should turn, and we don't do it. Then we're not really turning And the preaching of the Word of God includes a preaching that we must genuinely turn. And when we talk about the keys of the kingdom, it speaks about how it is declared, and the preaching of the gospel is a key. It is declared to those that believe. The comforting word that their sins are forgiven. For the sake of what Christ for. What Christ has done. And then it says the flip side is that it's declared to those, to hypocrites and those who do not sincerely repent that they stand exposed to the wrath of God. And to hear that and then to continue on not to sincerely repent. The grievousness of hearing that the true gospel and not turning from sin now every one of us has to be constantly looking at our own sin when you and i think of what well what has god convicted me of that i should be turning from we when we gather for worship each week it should be that these sins remain against our will in us that we are genuinely fighting them we're genuinely turning from them we're Going to God, constantly asking for forgiveness and deliverance. We're not impenitently walking in a sin. Genuine turning. That we've laid aside unfeignedly. Just like the Lord's Supper form explains this quite well. That we're to come as those who have laid aside unfeignedly. That means not in a faked way, but genuinely. Now, that's not only true before the Lord's Supper, but every week we should come as those who have laid aside unfeignedly all bitterness and envy and are resolved to walk in true love and peace with our neighbor and to show true love. And when we sin against others, we're not showing love for them as we ought and we're to come as those who are resolved to show true love and peace with our neighbor Paul speaks of how these Thessalonians the, the ones to whom he speaks here they really turned they continued to have to fight their sin they turned to God from idols and they were waiting For God's Son, waiting for His Son. To turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and we'll talk about that, Lord willing, in a moment. The serving part, aspect. But then going on to the fact that it says, and to wait for His Son from heaven. To wait for Him. Waiting for God's Son, whom He raised from the dead. as was mentioned earlier in the trials that we face we who struggle with our own sins and we grieve about our own sins we hear about the sins of others and we think of our own violations of all of his commandments and we're so thankful that we know the day will come that we'll sin no more and the believer looks forward to that you know what a joy when you hear a a, a saint that is dying who's looking forward to that who's looking forward to the fact that it won't be longer won't be long and they will sin no more ever again looking forward to Christ's return that we might be fully delivered And also in the trials that we go through, the difficulties that we face. The Thessalonians were persecuted. One of the themes that runs through the letter is the persecution that the Thessalonians were experiencing. And you can see that in the book of Acts. They were coming against Paul and Silas. And then you see what, they, what was happening with, with Jason, who had received them. who They said Jason has received them. So they grab a hold of Jason and then you read of more of the persecution that they experienced. He says to them, you received the word of God in much affliction. That's what he says to them in verse 6. Having received the word of God, the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, there was much Persecution. There was much suffering, and the saints there are being encouraged. You're waiting for Christ, whom He raised from the dead. Now, why does He mention that? Waiting for His Son, whom He raised from the dead. Well, in the epistles of First and First Thessalonians, He's going to talk more about the resurrection of the dead. Another point to take note in the epistles of Paul and using First Thessalonians as an example is that a number of times at the beginning of a letter he will bring up subjects that he's going to talk about in more detail in the letter. In fact it's quite striking to see how many times that's the case. That you can go through the beginning where he's thanking God for them the things he mentions when he's thanking God for them You go through these things and say, Well, that's a subject he's you go after you talk about the different subjects he mentions, and you can see a number of times these are subjects he's going to mention in more detail. The resurrection is one of them. Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, what does that mean for us? If Jesus was raised, it certainly we will be raised. If our head has been raised. It's certain He will raise us, the members of His body. He was raised, He ascended into heaven, and they believe that. They're waiting for Him to come from heaven. And We show that we believe that. When we make our confession, we're waiting for Christ to come from heaven. From heaven, are we sure He's there? We have no doubt that He's there. We've never seen Him with the eye of the body. We have no doubt He has ascended into heaven. We've heard the news, we've heard the gospel, the Spirit has worked in us faith, so that we're waiting for for something that's amazing, that Christ is going to come with the clouds of of glory, with the saints, and the bodies are going to be raised. Some say, you really believe that's going to happen? How is that possible? It is going to happen. I have no doubt it will. No doubt at all. That waiting is the hoping, looking forward to it, having no doubt that it's going to happen. We're familiar with the fact that when the Scriptures speak of us hoping for Christ to come back, for the bodily resurrection, we're hoping for something we're certain is going to happen, and we're longing for it. The idea of hoping has those ideas. Expecting it, being certain you're going to receive it. Even though we use the word hope to express doubt, I hope this will happen, but I have some doubts. We understand that the term hope, when it's being used to refer to what God has promised, we have no doubt it's going to happen. Christ is coming. We're waiting for Him. passage speaks of our patient waiting for Him to come back. We know He's coming. We know He's coming as judge. We know wrath is coming. He delivered us from the wrath to come. So the passage speaks about Christ coming, and it speaks of wrath coming. Those are related. The coming of Christ and the coming of wrath. In fact, they're connected in Revelation chapter 6. Where the wrath that's referred to is the wrath of the Lamb. Christ being the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. That passage that says that they'll be saying to the rock, the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Familiar with that? Going on, what do they say? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. That's brought up again in 2 Thessalonians 1. When you go to the second epistle and you look at the beginning of that, there's a reference to Christ coming back. Right in the first chapter. It says, It's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, who are troubled now, rest With us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, rest. When our Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance. There, you see the idea of the coming of Christ and the coming of wrath. We're waiting for our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power he preached that and it's mentioned here about the wrath to come we're waiting for the one who delivered us from the wrath to come So that idea of the coming wrath, not denying that that wrath is coming when the scriptures clearly teach it, but also teaching the comforting news that there is forgiveness. That Christ delivered us from the wrath to come and God's people who are sorry for their sins. These these idolaters were sinners. They had turned from idolatry, from sin. They were waiting for the one that delivered us from the wrath to come. They deserved wrath. We deserve wrath. We come to God asking, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, and are comforted knowing that the one who's coming delivered us from the coming wrath. Hoping, Waiting, it shows itself in our speech. The fact that these Thessalonians were waiting for Christ to come back manifested itself in their speech. Think of a child that is excited about something that's going to happen. And they talk about it. Maybe their parents have told them that they're going to do something the next day or that very day, and they're so excited about it that they like to talk about what we're going to do today or what we're going to do tomorrow. They're looking forward to it, and they want to talk about it. The saints in Thessalonica talked about the things that God had promised. It says, from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. The word echoed forth from them. Other people in other regions heard. That's quite something. Scriptures say we're to be ready to give an answer to anybody that asks us about the hope that is within us. Somebody asking you or me about the hope that is in us. That they hear what we say, they see what we do, and they ask us. Our desire is that we would be a faithful witness. That our mind on things above, we would talk about these things and we would be comforted and encouraged speaking on on these things patiently waiting in the trials that we face waiting and serving waiting doesn't mean inactivity when it says they turn to God from idols, they turn from sin to God. So that in our battle with sin, we're not just to turn away from what is forbidden, but we're to turn to God and to serve Him. To serve Him. We serve the God who has saved us. We're not inactive. It wasn't that long ago that we... I preached here on a passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul brought out that there were some in Thessalonica that were not working at all. It wasn't the case that that was the case with all of them, but with some. To the saints here, he speaks of their work of faith and labor of love and so on. He says that to them. But then he also points out there's some of you that aren't working. Some are working out at all, but are busy bodies. So he mentions that. Putting this together with waiting and serving brings out that while those who are waiting, we're to be actively serving ourselves. Serving the living God. To serve. Has the idea of being owned. That term here for being, for serving the living God, has the idea of being owned by someone, like we would say a slave who is owned by someone. But not in the sense of forced service, but in the sense of total belonging. Total devotion. Total submission to His will. You and I say our only comfort in the trials we go through, in life and in death, I'm not my own. That's my comfort. That's my only comfort. I'm not my own. That's exactly the idea here. Serving, being owned by Christ. Who has redeemed us. Who assures me of eternal life. These are the points that are mentioned in Lord's Day 1. He's delivered us. His spirit is in us. He assures me, I'm going to live forever. I belong to Christ, who is immortal, and I'm a member of his body. I'll live forever. Nothing can separate us, separate me from his love. He assured me, he'll be with me always. And he makes me. Sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. To live to Him. The Spirit works in me and makes me sincerely willing and ready. We confess that to live unto Him. We confess that and we recognize we only have a small beginning of the new obedience. we see we still have a depraved nature. We confess we violated all the commandments and kept none of them. It's also true that we read Lord's Day 1 and we read that, makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. And if somebody says, is that true? Yes, it is. It is. It is. I don't just memorize that, for many, many have memorized it. It's a very comforting question and answer. I confess from the heart it's true. The Spirit works in me and in His people, that we turn from idols, for turn from sin to God to serve Him. The same spirit that worked in the Thessalonians is in us, is in me. And we look to God for grace. We desire to increase in our love. The epistle speaks about that. We ask God for grace that we may increase in our love for our spouse. for our children, if we're married, if we have children, for one another. Lord, grant me the grace that I may increase in my love for God, for his people, for my family, that I might set forth a good example. Paul spoke of imitating Christ spoke of how the Thessalonians imitated him and spoke of how the Thessalonians were an example for others. We read of that in this very chapter. He became followers of us and of the Lord so that ye were examples to all that believe. We desire that we would set forth a good example to the children To those outside, that we may show forth in our life our thankfulness to our God, and that we may glorify the name of our Savior. May our God grant us that grace. May we speak of His wondrous works. May we be strengthened by the Spirit, turning away from our own sin to God, the true God, the living God waiting for the son of god to come from heaven may we serve him may we glorify his name and may others see the work of the spirit with us in us and may god's name be magnified amen let us pray O Lord our God, our Father, we give Thee thanks and praise. O Lord, we're sorry for our own sin. Lord, forgive us and strengthen us. We are so thankful for the work of the Spirit within us that turns us from sin unto Thee, genuine turning. May we be strengthened in the ongoing battle throughout this life. And may Thy name be magnified by us, by our children. Bless us in our generations, we pray, and bless thy people in all nations, for Christ's sake. Amen.